It's Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why some streetlights across the U.S. and Canada have been turning purple, and what it says about the larger effects of the supply chain on our cityscapes. Plus, the emus that were banned from a bar in Queensland two years ago have returned with a surprise. And New Zealand's parliament just passed a lifetime ban on smoking for the youngest members of Gen Z and beyond. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Have you seen any streetlights in your neighborhood giving off an eerie purple glow, almost like a black light? A quick Google search for purple streetlights brings up news clippings from Maryland, Wisconsin, Vancouver, South Florida, Kansas, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Minnesota, North Texas. Literally every result is from a different city across the U.S. and Canada from within the past year, explaining the situation to residents and instructing them on how to report a purple streetlight if they see it. This phenomenon is happening in tons of places, and it's not a planned initiative. This isn't leftover from Halloween or celebrating some kind of holiday or trying to make a political statement. It's not even an intentional new technology. Well, not exactly, anyways. It's a malfunction in newer LED lighting that's occurred in numerous cities across at least three countries, Ireland being the third. Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Insider, recently got to the bottom of it. Now, reassuringly, there is a fixable route to the problem. Less reassuringly, the fix will work for now, but there are cracks in the seams that could rip at any point, not just with LED lighting, but with technology in general. Now, I'm fascinated by the ways the world has changed since the advent of artificial lighting. Despite still not having actually read the whole thing, I have regularly quoted excerpts from Paul Bogard's The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. It's a book about the importance of darkness, what we've lost, culturally and physically in our vision, since we stopped experiencing true nighttime darkness writ large, and how we might regain some of that. Now, Rogers, an insider, reminds us of how, after candles, cities were first illuminated by gas lamps, and then by electricity. We went from arc lights to incandescent bulbs, and neon, fluorescent tubes, mercury vapor, sodium vapor. Recently, more and more cities have been switching to LEDs. They last longer and don't get hot, so they're more affordable in the long run, and with their method of turning electricity directly into light, they're more climate-friendly. Every single switch in types of lighting was met with at least a little backlash. You know, think of like when a website that you visit every day makes a major change to its interface. Even if you can objectively recognize the advantages of the change, it's still different, not as familiar. Quoting Rogers and Insider, In terms of look and feel, there's no objective difference between, say, orange sodium vapor lights and white LEDs unless you care deeply about colorimetry. But when that orange glow is what defined your city and your childhood, you don't take that change lightly. Lights at night make a city into a whole new place, a radiant and reflective construct, no longer beholden to the geometric structure and material resolution of the day. 
as Sandy Eisenstadt, an art and architecture historian at the University of Delaware, once wrote. The nighttime illumination of a place literally defines its outlines. A new color casts everything in a whole new light. End quote. But before all of these LEDs were being installed throughout the early 2000s and causing all of those changes to the cityscape, cities themselves had to pick exactly what version of white to use. Quoting again, For technical reasons derived from quantum theory and the quirky psychophysics of our eyes and brains, scientists measure the color of white light in kelvins, or color temperature. Higher numbers are bluer, lower are yellower and redder. Lots of cities settled on 4,000 Kelvin, the lunar glow of high-end sports car headlights, and not coincidentally, one of the easiest and therefore cheapest white LEDs to manufacture. End quote. Cheap manufacturing is going to be key here, but first, some more background on color and LEDs courtesy of Rogers. So white is a combination of all the colors in the visible spectrum, but you don't actually have to use all the colors for our human eyes to perceive white. Equal parts of red, green, and blue do just as well, for example. But while red and green LEDs were being used in the mid-20th century, blue LEDs were a tough nut to crack and wouldn't be available until about the turn of the century. And with blue LEDs, the need for red and green to create white wasn't actually necessary anymore. Quoting again, a blue LED underneath a fancy ceramic and glass lens impregnated with a yellow phosphor would do the job. Our eyes see the blue and yellow mix as white. That was the big breakthrough. Just wrap the blue LED chips in a complicated package of glass, sealant, solder, wires, and so on. Do it cheaply and reliably enough, and you've got yourself a global business. End quote. That package can be delicate, and different manufacturers do it in different ways. One mechanical engineer that spoke to Rogers said there's probably a couple hundred patents on LED package design. Now, one issue that can arise is a delamination of the phosphor coating. That laminate is what provides the white color. Remember, the blue LED and yellow phosphor mixing seems white to our eyes, so the laminate of the phosphor is key. And delamination can occur because that phosphor layer is incredibly sensitive to temperature changes, and as Rogers points out, even the tiniest mistakes in assembly or installation can make LEDs more likely to heat up. This leads to the delamination of the phosphor coating, letting the blue leak out all on its own. These mistakes in manufacturing, though, don't have to be a given. If you pay enough for long-term research, testing, and quality control, you can get the best, but hardly any companies can afford that. And it turns out, hardly any companies are in the game at all. One company dominates the U.S. market, Acuity Brands. In his research, Rogers discovered that every single city who has experienced a purple light issue and either spoke with him or has public records available bought their LED streetlights from Acuity. But Acuity wasn't making all the parts themselves. They outsourced the manufacture of the actual LEDs from third-party vendors in Asia. Exactly which vendors is unclear, though Rogers characterizes them as the kind of large manufacturers who focus on efficiency as a top priority, working to not infringe on higher quality product patents, and therefore sometimes slipping up on a tiny detail that can roll down the hill, becoming an even bigger problem the further it rolls. 
Not that this delamination that was caused is such a huge issue. In fact, a lot of people thought that the purple lights looked pretty cool. A safety argument could be made, but most lights are being noticed and taken care of pretty swiftly. Acuity themselves have been replacing every single purple light under warranty. And one of the companies that has installed a large portion of these lights, Duke Power, says that it's only affected about 1% of the lights that they've installed. Although, that still amounts to roughly 5,000 lights across the U.S. Now, personally, I just find this a fascinating dive down the spiral of the supply chain. Rogers, however, sees bigger issues. He wonders what could happen the next time one company making one or two seemingly innocuous pieces of a product have an unspotted fault that leads to larger malfunctioning after the product has already been bought and sold. What if, he posits, next time it's a phone or a medical device? After all, as Michael Petch, a mechanical engineer and electronics reliability expert, said to Rogers, quote, I find so often that companies don't really know what they're buying. They're looking at price. It's really a supply chain management problem, end quote. Lights are one of those huge sectors of infrastructure, like roads, building design, and the sounds of cars, that are equally about safety, accessibility, and defining the look and feel of our cityscapes. We've seen throughout history, as I said above, how much even minor changes to lighting has caused annoyance from people who are used to their neighborhood blocks or roads looking a certain way. So for something so important, it is a little frustrating to find out that the decision for what lights to use is based not on those concerns as much as on affordability. Whether it's the cheap 4000 Kelvin temperature of white or the cheaper LED made by a third party vendor. And it's also a tad alarming to realize how much of the look and feel of the world around us can be affected by fractional decisions made along the supply chain. In a tiny town in Queensland, Australia, there's a place called the Uraka Hotel. On the second floor of the hotel is the town's only pub. Among its regulars, historically, were two emus, siblings named Kevin and Carol. Having been raised by a local animal rescuer named Leanne Byrne, the two were extremely comfortable around humans, making them well-known around town and at the hotel in particular. The town even sells merchandise of them, according to All That's Interesting. Byrne told ABC that a drought when Kevin and Carol were young made it difficult for them to find food and drinking water, which probably explains why they hung around town so often to begin with, as opposed to spending most of their time in the nearby wilderness. Staying in town back then, however, also meant that the other seven siblings from their batch of eggs all died in their youth, most of them victims of automobile accidents. So it's just been Kevin and Carol for years, waltzing about town like they own the place. That ego got a bit too much two years ago, though. Kevin and Carol were beginning to get too mischievous. They learned how to get up the stairs to the bar and would steal food, drinks, and possessions from the tourists and pub regulars. Their misbehaving got so bad that in 2020, Yuraka Hotel posted a laminate sign at the pub entrance reading, Emus have been banned from this establishment for bad behavior. Please let yourself in through the emu barrier and then reconnect it. 
As Uraka Hotel co-owner Jerry Gimblet said in an interview when this emus banned from the local pub story made international headlines, quote, We put the sign up, but we're not quite sure whether they're able to read or not, so we had to put a bar across there as well. End quote. Now, I remember this story pretty well because around the time that it was making the rounds, I was a guest on the No Bad Ideas podcast, in which myself and the hosts, all writers, used this story as a jumping-off point for some improvisational storytelling. Link in the show notes to give it a listen. But as for the real story, after being banned from the pub, Kevin and Carol eventually weren't seen around town as much. Now, this isn't too unusual. Byrne, their sort of caretaker, travels a few months each year for work, and during that time, Kevin and Carol usually go off to the wilderness, returning to town when she does. But this time, when Byrne returned, they didn't come back. Eventually, Byrne found them. Kevin and Carol were hanging out in the wilderness, not too far from Uraka, and had been busy. They were now accompanied by four chicks. And uh, remember that Kevin and Carol are siblings. As Byrne says, quote, we'll just leave that alone. So Kevin and Carol, having sowed their wild oats getting banned from the Uraka Hotel, have now settled down in the countryside as parents. And Byrne hopes it stays that way for a while, so their baby chicks are protected from the same fate as Kevin and Carol's unfortunate siblings who died via traffic collisions. But once the chicks are a bit older, Byrne says she hopes they come back to town. Who knows, maybe they'll follow in their parents' footsteps and cause all kinds of ruckus at the Uraka Hotel pub. Well, quick update on a story that I discussed this time last year, but which has just officially passed in New Zealand's parliament. As one part of a new smoke-free environments bill, no one born after the year 2008 will ever be able to legally purchase cigarettes or tobacco products. The lifetime ban will mean, as the BBC points out, that come 2050, even 40-year-olds will be too young to buy cigarettes. Now, notably, the bill does not cover vape products, which are more popular with Gen Z. And while the bill, since its introduction a year ago, has been praised by doctors and health experts, some critics say that it is a nanny state move that will create a black market and decimate small shops that rely on the sale of cigarettes. And that last part isn't just a hypothetical. The bill does also limit the number of retailers who are able to sell smoked tobacco products. It will go down from 6,000 to 600. The bill will also reduce the levels of nicotine allowed in products to make them less addictive. It is a bold and intriguing bill, and with such a long-term execution, I guess it will be a while before we see how it really plays out. One other thing before I go, the trailer just dropped today for a new sci-fi movie starring Adam Driver. Now, most of the headlines are giving it away, but if you can watch the trailer without being spoiled by the twist in it, I think it'll be a pretty cool experience. It is a great concept that I can't wait to see, and I just had to share because it looks so cool. The movie is called 65, and it is set to be released in March 2023. Link to the trailer is in the show notes. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.